If you've been around for at least several weeks, you know we've been walking our way through the uh, letter to the Hebrews right after Philemon, right before the book of James in the New Testament. We're heading up to verse to uh, chapters six through eight this morning. The goal is try to try to understand what this letter or this sermon means that was written a couple of thousand years ago, and we're gathering together the information to understand what this preacher tried to say 2,000 years ago. Uh, This is a sermon, Hebrews. It's a sermon written to, as you know, Christians, probably Jewish Christians, who are thinking that perhaps it would just be easier to revert to Judaism. This trusting Christ by faith and stuff, You serve and you do good for long enough, you start to wear out and you wonder, maybe isn't it just easier just to follow a list of rules? And this preacher is telling them, there's no going back. There's no going back. So by the time we arrive at the beginning of Hebrews 8, verse one, this is what he says. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. You can tell by the introduction to the chapter, now the main point is this, that this is a summary statement, right? But you might say, well, how do we get to this summary statement? What, what went before, what got us there? Well, you remember the pathway we've walked. We began with the description of who Jesus is in chapter one. We heard the author make the case that Jesus is higher than the angels. He's superior to Moses, that he was a priest made perfect through suffering and obedience. He was a priest who could perfectly identify with our humanity. He was a faithful and merciful priest, a priest who announces that God's rest is still available for his people, a priest that is selected by God himself, and that God guaranteed his priesthood with an oath. Then the author quotes Psalm 110, verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's a mouthful. The Psalm, Psalm 110, began with the phrase, the Lord says to my Lord, and and clearly this Psalm is prophetic since no human can live on an eternal throne nor live forever on this earth. The psalmist proclaims that the Messiah to come will be a priest of a new order, the order of Melchizedek. So who on earth is Melchizedek? If you look back to the Old Testament, you discover that Abraham, the father of the nation, meets Melchizedek after a great battle. Abraham pays Melchizedek a tithe and recognizes him as a priest of God Most High. And yet, Melchizedek, we're told in Scripture, is not of the priestly line. In terms of the chronology of Israel, we haven't even gotten to Aaron and the Levites yet in the story. And Melchizedek, in addition to being a priest, is a king. 
And in Israel, the priestly lines and the ruling lines one day will be separate. Kings don't get to act as priests. Saul tried that once and got into a whole heap of trouble when he chose not to wait for Samuel, just go ahead and do the sacrifice himself. Not kosher. Okay? And yet, Melchizedek here is a priest king to whom Abraham pays tithe. What's going on there? This is an interesting kind of scripture. This is an example of types in the Old Testament. Types, it's a literary term, are a kind of foreshadowing, a prediction that something else is coming that will be like the present reality. Let me give you an example. If you're reading a book and you read through a passage that has difficult things for the hero in it, you might get to the end of the chapter and read a sentence like this. Even though he survived the fall, he would never forget who it was that pushed him from the roof to begin with. There's a hint in that statement that something more is going to happen that things will grow out of that event. Our hero will remember, and he will likely do something in the future. That is foreshadowing, okay? There are things in the story of Israel that are observed or introduced that will help us explain the revelation of God as it unfolds. And those things in the history of Israel are called types of something that is still to come. Most of the time, they're identified for the future, looking backwards. This is a type of that. Paul tells us, for example, that Adam is a type of Christ in that his actions affected the whole of humanity as Christ's actions will also affect the whole of humanity. There's a similarity somehow between the two. Melchizedek is a shadowy figure in Israel's past that doesn't fit any norms, and yet by virtue of the fact that Abraham pays tribute to him, he is superior to Abraham. To the Jews, no one is superior to Abraham. He's the father of the nation. So this Melchizedek character is a really interesting individual. And you can see how the stage is set for Jesus. Jesus, this one who is our king and also our priest, he is going to, our author of Hebrews tells us, inherit a priesthood just like the one Melchizedek enjoyed. Melchizedek is a foreshadow or a type of Jesus Christ, in that both are priests and kings, and neither are from the priestly, hereditary line. And God himself selects Jesus to be our priest. The oath of God from Psalm 110 is the thing that anchors our hope in the effective work of this new priest king to come Jesus. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 say, we have this anchor 
We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's how this all ties together. He is our priest king. Let me digress for a moment. Part of the argument our author is going to make in chapters six through eight is this. If the old priesthood could have brought us to perfection, there wouldn't have been a need for a further type of priesthood. A new priesthood was called for. The author's telling us the whole sacrificial system was ineffective because it didn't have the power to bring us to completion. It's not that the previous system, it's not that the Old Testament law was useless or without purpose. It was useful, it had purpose, but it was partial, ineffective, and shadowy. But it did give us help in understanding the new covenant and the new priesthood that was coming. The former system, which was operated by human priests, was temporary and had significant limitations. One of them being the priest died on you. Just about the time you got to know that priest, he died. He couldn't continue to make intercession for you because he was dead, just like you were. But there's a better covenant coming. There's a better priest coming. And even though the old system was ineffective to help, the new one would be effective to help us. And now that there is a new eternal covenant in place, this new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, a new kind of priest is needed. One who does not need to make sacrifices for his own sins. One who does not die and consequently never needs to be trained for his duties and lives to ever intercede for us. And one whose eternal existence allows him to personally guarantee the continuity of all of his promises. We need, and this new covenant demands, a new kind of priest, a holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted to the heavens kind of priest. And that's what he's saying in Hebrews 8.1. This is exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. This should be cause for great celebration among us. What we need is what we have. Jesus is sufficient. And so the author says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary beyond the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered in our behalf. Jesus entered the very throne room of God, pleading his own sacrifice for our sins and succeeded in completing the plan of salvation that his Father and he and the Holy Spirit conspired together to set in motion before he ever created anything we see. What a magnificent plan, and what a magnificent Savior. 
Jesus will live to pray for us, to intercede for us forever. He is our king and our priest. One day, he will be our judge. Christ's superior priesthood is our hope and our firm anchor. Do you remember the story from Luke chapter 18 where a certain ruler says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds and says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Do you remember those comments? The, the young guy hears Jesus say, follow the commandments. He says, I've always followed the commandments. Jesus says back to him, well, sell your possessions, give them to the poor. And the young man is dejected because he's wealthy and just walks away and checks out. I've always wondered what Jesus meant when he said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. I always thought that he was correcting the young man, and it wasn't until this week that I finally understood what that question was about. That, that was a diagnostic question. Jesus wanted to know whether the young man thought that Jesus was God or not. Because it really matters who you think the person is that you're asking the question. You know, if, you, if you're asking your doctor a medical question, you expect him to be an authority, right? And if the question is medically based, you would pay attention to the answer because he's an authority. So when Jesus asks the question, why do you call me good, only God is good, he's saying, do you consider me to be God? Because if the young man thinks it's God answering the question, well, what are the implications of that? I mean, I can remember back when I was a school principal, occasionally a parent would come into my office and the parent would say to me, God has told me to take the family and the kids to Disney World next week. Uh, is that okay for missing school? And I'd say, why are you asking me? If God has told you, my opinion is irrelevant in this matter. But if you're pretending it was God who told you, then it's a different matter, and by the way, you'll still have to make up the homework. If, if it's God answering we don't really have options in the obedience part after that, do we? And it's clear from that particular story in Luke that the young man just didn't believe it was God answering. Otherwise, how do you walk away? What, what options do you have if it's God who's speaking? So the question really is, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you believe that Jesus is? Is he really our priest, king, and God? Do you believe enough in the lordship of Jesus to allow him to direct your behavior? Will you allow him to be an inconvenience to you? Will you allow him to determine how you speak to the other members of your family? Or 
what sacrifices you will make on behalf of others, or the amount of time you will give him for communion and devotion, or, or will you let him direct how you financially invest your capital? Because at the bottom line, if Jesus isn't God, then his answers to these questions don't matter. You really can do as you please. But if he really is king, then he deserves obedience. If he really is priest, then he has the wisdom as a mediator between you and God to determine the absolute truth of matters. And if he really is God, then he is your judge, and it makes sense to do everything he says. And so the question always is, who is Jesus? And how and to what degree will we listen to him and obey him? Are we the folks like C.S. Lewis described who, rather than God judging us, we determine we will judge God and we'll determine whether what he says to us makes enough sense for us to do it? And if it's not completely logical or doesn't meet our sensibilities or our, our modern mindset, well then, I mean, God is just irrelevant after that point. Unless he really is king, unless he really is priest, unless he really is judge, and all of those things eternally. This sermon is a two-sided kind of thing. On one side, we should be dancing in the aisles to know that we have a priest and king like Jesus. It should be such a huge encouragement to us to know that we have an eternal king who makes eternal promises, who's interceding for us, who's always present, who's always in our corner, who is our anchor and our hope and our stability. But on the other side, we should be groveling on our faces before the awesome majesty of this priest king Jesus in deepest humility and respect given all that we know about him. He's our hope, he's our anchor, and yet both are true at the same time. Jesus is our hope when we are members of his family committed to his obedience. I hate to contemplate Jesus as judge if we ignore disobey, and turn our back on him. I choose to live in the hope side of that. Jesus anchor, Jesus fortress, Jesus stability, Jesus redeemer, strong tower, refuge, helper. Jesus eternal priest, king, and God is Jesus, your hope? Are you securely anchored to him today? There's an old hymn that used to ask a question. It went like this. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? Good question, isn't it? And the chorus always brought back the answer that I wanted to sing. 
We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. We have that anchor this morning in Jesus Christ, our priest, king, who is our God. If you don't know Jesus as your hope this morning, if you're not attached to that anchor, rooted in eternity in the throne room of God, it is possible for you to enter that family, that family of Jesus. It requires humbly admitting that you've fallen short, that you've sinned, that you've disrespected him, and asking him to forgive you. And that it, it involves saying, Lord Jesus, help me learn to follow you. Those are the first steps into the kingdom that begin this amazing journey that unleashes all the promises of God for time and for eternity. And this morning as we sing a closing song and as we pray, I'd invite you to consider that invitation to make sure that before you leave here today that Jesus is your anchor and that Jesus is your hope so that you can secure the eternal promises of God for you. Let's pray together. Would you stand while we pray? Magnificent Jesus, you are more than we can imagine, more than we can understand. You're beyond our comprehension, Lord. We can't figure out why we get a priest like you. We can't figure out, Lord, why we get a king like you. One we know we must obey, but one we know loves us extravagantly. And so we ask for your help, Lord, today. Help us to hear your voice as you call for us. For those of us who have never stepped into the kingdom of God, we pray this morning you would give them courage to humbly confess their sin to you and to ask for your help in following you. We pray that by your spirit you would step into their hearts and begin to guide them and begin this process of changing them the way you have begun the process of changing us. And Lord, for all of us who are already on that journey, help us to acknowledge again that you are our king, that you have the right to call us into obedience, that you are our priest, always bringing us to the Father. And help us, Lord, to obey you in all that you call us to do. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our hope, our strong anchor. Enable us to honor you by all that we do. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you're contemplating stepping into the kingdom of God for the first time, I would encourage you to call me this week. Send me email. My email's on the website. 
I'd love to talk with you about it. I'd love to pray with you uh, concerning that. One of my chief pleasures is to have spiritual conversations with people. So please don't think, oh, he's probably busy. Never too busy for those kinds of conversations. So I hope you'll call so we can pray together, encourage one another as we seek the Lord together. And now may you revel in the fact that you have a hope securely anchored in the throne room of God. And may you live your lives to his glory now and forever. Amen.